0: During the time that I have left as your priest in charge, one of the things I want to do is to accompany the celebration of the Holy Eucharist with some teaching about some parts of it. And so today, I'm pausing the first part of the service in two places so that I can say something about the meaning of what we're doing here Sunday after Sunday. My comments today will be restricted to the first section of the service, the part the Book of Common Prayer calls, the Word of God. (coughs) Two Sundays from now, on May 29th, I'll do the same for the second part of the Eucharist, which in the prayer book is called the Holy Communion. Finally, because of the importance of the role of music in our worship, I've asked Kyle Ritter, to talk to us about hymns and service music on July 10th. In case you're wondering, my remarks about the service will be taking the place of the sermon. You can relax. (laughs) I paused here so early in the service because I want to talk about the colic that comes right at the beginning and the readings that follow it. You notice the name of this kind of prayer is pronounced collect, with the accent on the first syllable, not as normal in English with the accent on the second syllable, collect. This reminds us that the word really isn't an English word at all, but a Latin one masquerading as an English word. Now having told you that this sort of prayer is called by a Latin name, I wish I could be as precise in letting you know what the word means, but no one is quite sure. Perhaps the prayer is called a collect because it collects themes of the particular season of the church year, with collects in the Easter season often having Easter themes, ones during Lent having penitential ones. Or maybe the term collect is suggesting how the prayer sums up themes found in the readings for a particular Sunday, like last Sunday's, which picked up the theme of Christ as the Good Shepherd, which figures in the readings. One more possibility, the collect coming as it does at the beginning of the service, serves to collect and give focus to the individual prayers and meditations we've been making before the service began. My hunch is that all three of them have apply to give meaning to a colic. Let me now say something about the sort of prayer a colic is. It isn't the kind of prayer we'd make when we pray to God out of the needs of our life and what is weighing on our hearts. That sort of prayer is deeply private and free-flowing, passing from one thought to another, one emotion to another, as ideas and petitions form in our mind, and only God needs to understand it. If the collect is going to gather up our thoughts and capture our attention, it can't be free-floating and diffuse. It must be crystal clear and to the point. Even its form helps to focus the thoughts of the whole congregation. This Sunday's Collect is a typical example. It begins by addressing God and offering a statement about one of God's virtues or qualities. Open your leaflet to page two and follow along. This Sunday's colleague describes God in this way. Whom truly to know is eternal life. Not a word wasted. Not a fuzzy thought. It's as crisp as a potato chip. It's simple, but think about it. There's food for thought there. We tend to think of eternal life as something that will follow this life, but the colic suggests that if you know God deeply enough, you are already participating in eternal life, now during this life. Then the colic proceeds to the second part of it. That's where we make a petition. In this Sunday's colic, we pray that we may know Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, And that by following him we may be led to eternal life so now we're offered another way to understand eternal life that if we follow jesus we may be led to eternal life and with jesus we're certain to experience what eternal life is even now this is a prayer that engages our thought as well as our emotions At this point, the Collect has done what it set out to do, but we still need to acknowledge how it is that we dare to pray to God. We make this prayer and every prayer in the name of Jesus, through whom all our prayers are offered to God. Finally, we conclude with an Amen. This is a word without a fixed meaning in Hebrew, but it can mean something like, I join my mind and my heart to this prayer. Or it can be response to the person making the prayer on my behalf by affirming that the prayer is mine too in the sense of amen to that. The readings and the psalm follow the collect. And I won't say anything about the substance of the readings for this Sunday, although I would if I were preaching a sermon. Let me say that these readings are offered for our hearing because the Bible is filled with a variety of ways in which the good news of God's salvation is expressed. A reading from the historical parts of the Bible show us how God acts in the daily lives of the people who've been led to follow in God's way. A passage from one of the prophets sheds penetrating light on the meaning of God's actions, either actions in the past or actions to come, as these actions are always filtered through the life experiences of the individual prophets. The psalm gives poetic and prayerful voice to our deepest feelings and hopes. Not for nothing is it called the prayer book of Jews and Christians, and Jesus knew the Psalms probably by heart. The Gospels tell in similar but fascinatingly different ways the story of Jesus' life and record the fragments of his teaching early Christians preserved. In the Gospels, the words of Christ are as real to us as Christ is in the bread and wine of the Communion. The letters are taken mostly from St. Paul, who wrote them in great haste and in the full flush of inspiration, which is why they sometimes give the lectors pause in trying to figure out how to get Paul's point across to us. And Paul's letters give us our earliest understanding of the meaning of Jesus' life and ministry. The book of Revelation, offers us in a strangely poetic way, pictures of the goal to which we are striving, to which the collect refers, the blessings of life eternal. All of these readings together make up what is the good news God offers us. We cannot safely leave aside any part of the good news of the Holy Scriptures. I'll stop now. We can pick up the service with the collect and the readings and then, before the peace, I'll break the service's flow again. Older members of our congregation will remember the time when there was no passing of the peace. And at first, there was resistance to it. I remember in one church I was the interim for, a pair of sisters who were otherwise most friendly and welcoming when it came to the peace kept kneeling and rested their heads on their arms making it quite clear they wanted nothing to do with the peace. (laughs) So why do we do the peace? For several reasons. It's an ancient custom of Christians and it was widely practiced in the early church. It follows directly after the confession of sin, which is a corporate acknowledgement of our sinfulness as a congregation and as individuals, and our constant need for God's forgiveness. To neglect the confession of our sins is to keep God from offering us one of the gifts God is most anxious to bestow upon us. The forgiveness of those sins and the offering of new life. For without that forgiveness, how would we ever lift ourselves out of the consequences of our destructive misdeeds and impure thoughts? We have neglected the saying of the confession here at the cathedral for far too long. Now the confession of sin, we say together, is very general. No specific sins are confessed, although those are likely to get brought up to our minds as we pray the words of the confession. And though the words of forgiveness the priest and bishop pronounces through those, we are made aware of God's forgiveness. These sins, then, are put from us. We're not to brood on them further. God has forgiven us of them, forgotten them. If, however, we can't let them go, or they continue to trouble us, giving us no peace, then it's time to speak with a priest to receive direction and advice, and perhaps to have these particular sins forgiven through the sacrament of confession. And should you wish to know more about what that service is like, You can find it starting on page 447 in the Book of Common Prayer, where the service is called The Reconciliation of a Penitent. One of the gifts of the forgiveness of sins is peace. And so it's natural that following the confession of sins, we should hear the comforting words of, the peace of Christ be with you. We don't just say the words of the peace to each other. At least during pre-COVID times, we touched each other too. We passed the peace to each other through a handshake, an embrace, or a kiss. Peace was a recurring theme in Jesus' teaching, and it is expressed everywhere in the writings of the Christian scriptures. At the Last Supper, As John relates it in his gospel, Jesus comforts his troubled disciples by saying to them, Peace is my parting gift to you, my own peace, such as the world cannot give. So set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears. And when Jesus saw his disciples after he rose from the dead, he greeted them with the words, Peace be with you. St. Paul, at the end of a long and contentious letter to the Christians at Corinth, leaves them with these encouraging words. Encourage one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace and love will be with you. Greet one another with the kiss of peace. This is the peace we're passing to each other at every Sunday service. It is a peace which comes from Jesus and is another way Jesus is present to us in our services and in our lives. Those words of peace are a good way, too, for me to end these comments on this part of the Holy Eucharist. Lifted up by that peace which passes understanding, we are now able to enter into the section of the service called the Holy Communion and receive him, who is our peace.